Welcome to Breaking News with Ben Hunt, Jack Forehand, and Matt Ziegler. Before we start, let me remind you what this show is not. Breaking News is not a show about fact-checking. Breaking News is not a show about saying whose bias is the one and only correct bias. And Breaking News is definitely not a show about calling out fake news. Breaking News is a show where we look at today's top stories and have a conversation around our favorite critical question, why am I reading this now? Drawing on the headlines we're tracking at fiatnews.com, join us as we talk about what's collectively making us tick with clear eyes, full hearts, and this obligatory disclaimer. Nothing in this podcast is advising you to buy or sell any security or to do anything with your money. Seriously, you should only act on investment advice from someone you know and someone who knows your unique situation. We are not that person. Just one more thing before we start. For anyone listening on the Epsilon Theory audio feed, we have also created a YouTube channel for the podcast. The channel can be accessed at youtube.com backslash at breaking news pod. And we encourage you to subscribe if you would like to watch the episodes on video. Thank you. We appreciate it. Welcome back to Breaking News. I'm Matt Ziegler. That's Jack Forehand and that's Ben Hunt. Hi, guys. How are we doing? Good. How are you? Doing great. Great to be back. So today we're picking up a little bit where we left off in the last episode, which is this idea of political entrepreneurs. And what we wanted to do today is talk about what an upstart political entrepreneur does, what they look like, and kind of unpack what the strategy is when you're just starting out. So to start, I want to just reframe that idea really quick from last episode, where we talked about how a political entrepreneur is perhaps best thought of as an entrepreneurial politician. In other words, it's this person who's using ideas to get people onto their side in a way that they can amass some market share and move their objective initiatives, whatever, forward. So just, just to start, before we talk about the startup entrepreneur and what that strategy looks like, anything to add to that definition of political entrepreneur, Ben? No, I, I think you really hit it there, Matt. I, yeah. All right, I'll add this, which is that I think the, the, the corollary that a lot of people in, in our business, the investing business, can relate to is thinking of a political entrepreneur as thinking of that of them as like an, an, um, an asset management entrepreneur. And what I mean by that is that if you're raising an investment fund, you go and you ask people and institutions for money, just like a political entrepreneur would ask people for votes. Similarly to an asset manager entrepreneur, somebody raising a new fund, you're asking people for money that's already somewhere else, right? I mean, if you're a political entrepreneur, you're asking someone for your vote. They've almost certainly voted in the past, right? There's, there's, a, there's a range of political entrepreneurs that are trying to find new voters. But let's leave that aside. The bulk of political entrepreneurship is very similar to the bulk of, again, we're calling it asset management entrepreneurship, fundraising entrepreneurship, in that you're asking for money that's already parked somewhere else. And that is such a more difficult uh, effort. It's, a, it's such a higher hurdle to cross than asking someone for money that's just sitting in a savings account. Well, although today savings account actually give a pretty good rate of return, right? So, so that becomes a hurdle as well. My, my point is that both fund entrepreneurs and political entrepreneurs have the added challenge of requiring the person who they're asking for support to change their mind, to take their money or their vote away from someone else and give it to the entrepreneur. That requires, well, it requires a lot. And that's what we want to talk about today. Yeah. And you know, and I think the thing I really, you could probably see me learning during the last episode. The big thing I learned is they have to be doing something new and different. Because to your point, if that vote is already somewhere else, like you got to do something, you know, outside of the ordinary, if you're going to yep. get that vote, especially in the type of system we have where everything is kind of entrenched in there. That's right, Jack. You have to do something not only different from where that vote or that money is already allocated, right? You can't be the me too candidate. I'm just like 
the place where you already have your money or your vote, that's not going to get someone to change. But you also have to get a difference between, I'll call it, the other incumbents, right? We all know what the incumbents are in our world, the investing world. You know, it's the big, the big institutional companies, right? Asset managers with lots of funds. And so you've got to be different not only from the place where the money is also allocated, but also different from where it's very easy and painless and defensible for switching money. You're the upstart, right? You're the, you're the new kid on the block. And either as a fund manager or as a politician, that requires um, a lot of creativity. And I think this is where we're going to go, Matt. But what it really requires is creating a new dimension on which you show up quite well and all of the other incumbents don't. It's creating that new dimension that is at the heart, I think, of both political entrepreneurship, but also entrepreneurship in our business of managing other people's money. Jack, I'm going to want you to take this take this out of my hands after a comment on this. Maybe Ben, feel free. There's there's this expression in the word uh, in the marketing world, and I've always been obsessed with this because anytime somebody's trying to crack or define a new market. Uh, unless unless you're dealing with a pure commodity, it's this idea of different versus better. Are you familiar with this? Have either of you ever run into this before? I'm really not. Tell me more. Oh, okay. This is this is a classic uh, marketing distinction. Christopher Lockhead, Seth Godin, and all of them talk about a version of this thing. So you different is more important than better. And the reason is if something is better, it might have like a better cost. It might be cheaper. It might be more expensive, whatever. Better just tells you like on a, on a relative basis how to compare two things that are the same. And so in this case, it's like I'm a better Republican or I'm a better Democrat than candidate X. You never want to be better. Better's always a losing proposition. It's Vanguard versus BlackRock. Yep. The race to zero. You're just racing to the bottom. Who wants to win a race to the bottom? Different. Different is... That, that's what we're all after when we're being entrepreneurial because different, whether in names of category or whatever else is saying, aha, I'm not, I'm not a better Republican. I'm not a better Democrat. I am a different Republican or different Democrat. And if you compete on better, it's a race to the bottom. If you compete on different, it's a whole new margin. It's a whole new market share that you can approach. I love that. I, I love that a ton. And it's your distinction between how incumbents compete and how new entrants have to compete in order to break into a market, I think is really key here. Because the incumbents, they absolutely compete on better, right? They absolutely compete on better because, you know, it's it, it, you can think of our political system as a whole like this. The Democrats and the Republicans compete on better. They don't compete on different. <laughs> they don't compete on different. Because they don't have to. Economies of scale, right? It's like Coke, Coke just has to be Coke because they have to play that defensive market leading position. And it's a very different strategy because they've already created and defined their category, their product. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, the, the drink category is very interesting. And I, and I think, Matt, you've done some work on this as well, right? I mean, talk about the, uh, uh, whether it's, monster or you're talking about the you know red bull i think is a great example right i mean red bull is intentionally not very tasty right because because that wouldn't work right i, I mean you're 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 marketing yourself on your difference that oh we are the heavy caffeine we our difference is that we don't you know it's not just about tasting good it's about giving you that energy Red Bull gives you wings. And as I understand it, the Red Bull recipe, which like intentionally makes it a little less tasty because to compete as they want to, to make you think about the difference, they need to taste a little different too. And we all know that medicine, stuff that's you know good for you makes that difference. It doesn't taste like candy. It doesn't taste as good. So it's, 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 what you're describing is exactly what's required by a new entrant into any category. 
It's not being better. I love that distinction. It's being different. And lest we forget, Jack, uh, before, as I interrupt you with this, uh, with Red Bull, exactly. They wanted it to taste bad, yeah. meaning not good, because medicine always tastes bad. You can't have good tasting medicine. That's a rule. And that's also why they put it in the smaller container, because yep. they were like, yeah. if it's in a smaller container, then it's more potent. And that's the way we do it. And this is also the inverse of this is, is this is why water doesn't taste like Dr. Pepper. <laughs> Because water is tasteless. These are all great Rory Sutherlandisms that water has to be tasteless because we just have to taste if there's something wrong with water. <laughs> water should never be like, ah, the cool, refreshing oh, taste of Dr. Pepper. Of water. Yeah, yeah. Whereas Dr. Pepper should basically be carbonated crack. I'm a doctor as a DD. Well, actually, I guess it was my, my, my mom who, who turned me on to DDP, the diet Dr. Pepper, right? You're from so the right part of the country to yeah, be a diet Dr. Pepper loyalist. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, in, you know, back in my you know, previous life, I was a political scientist of all oxymorons, right? And the, the, the way we usually talk about this in uh, issues is that there are a wide range of issues that candidates typically compete on being better, right? And, and these, these are all the very typical left-right issues because we even describe it and talk about it. Oh, I'm on the left of that issue. I'm on the right of that issue. We, we have in our brain this vision of a line where you've got a you know, population density at different you know, points on the line. For almost every issue, and going back as long as you've thought about politics in this kind of way, the American political experience, because we do have a constitution and a system that really, you know, enshrines a two-party system. <clears throat> it's extremely difficult to have a third party uh, in the United States. Uh, you know, it's called first past the post voting. When you were when your voting system is designed that you get fifty percent plus one of the voters, and you are the winner and there's nothing for the loser, that creates a two-party system. It just, it just does. And, it, and that's, it's almost impossible to break so long as you have that non-proportional representation that, I'll say, most other Western democracies have. Given the two-party system, I'll finish this up, right? Given the two-party system, because it's the other thing I want to talk about, it's creating a new issue to be different. But here's the other thing that's happening uh, in, in American politics today. For almost all of our experience as a country, these issues have been what are called a, right, $10 word alerts here, a single peaked distribution. It's like, think of it as like a bell curve, meaning that most people, most voters are in the middle somewhere. They're in the middle somewhere. Now, that distribution is going to be shifted to the left for Democrat Party voters or whatever party in the history of the United States filled that, that, that issue space. And it'll be shifted to the right when we think of this issue area for Republican voters again, or whatever party filled that void, right? The Whigs or whatever, right, in, in, in American history. And then when you put those two party distributions together, you get what is actually a single distribution, right? It looks kind of like a bell curve. It's the highest point is not necessarily directly in the middle. It's kind of a flat thing on top because you're, you're pushing together two, two distributions, one for the Republicans, one for the Democrats, to form a single, and this is how we think of politics, which is always why in, in, or historically in elections, what happens is that you win your primary and then you immediately move towards the middle. You, if you win the Republican primary, you immediately start taking on some uh, less aggressively to the right positions and if you win the Democrat primary, you immediately start moving to the middle and taking on less aggressively left 
positions on issues. That's how the American electorate has always been understood, that you want to be more in the middle than the next guy. And believe me, lots of trees have died to publish a lot of academic papers demonstrating that truth for most of American history. Now, there was a period of time in American history where this wasn't exactly right. And it's being duplicated today. What I mean by this is that we have, again, $10 word alert, a bimodal distribution, meaning that the average Democrat voter is now skewed farther to the left than they were in the past. The average mean Republican voter is now skewed more to the right. And interestingly also, it's less of a normal, it's less of that bell curve distribution. You've got some skew to the distribution for both parties. So it's like a the wave, if you think of the wave of a, of a bell-shaped curve, it kind of looked like it's pushed or squeezed over to the right for the Republican Party, and it's squeezed over to the left for the Democrat Party. Now, when you put those together, in the past, it really kind of formed this single wave with most everybody in the middle. Now it looks like a two-humped camel, right? You've actually got a dip there in the middle, and you've got two pluralities, one to the left and one to the right of the middle. This also happened in the 1930s, which was the last time, <clears throat> excuse me, the last time you saw what we refer to as polarization in Congress, where congressional leadership and congressional votes skew very much aside, where it became very difficult to pass uh, bipartisan legislation, very similar to today. So we didn't have these same sort of polls of the electorate back there in the 1930s. But I suspect that the electorate in the 1930s, when we had enormous uh, domestic political fighting and tension, is very similar to our domestic political electorate today, where it's not just that our elected officials are polarized, but it reflects the polarization among the electorate it's not a single distribution where you want to be in the middle of your issues. The middle, and this is where we're, we're bringing you back to political entrepreneurship, the upstart, the middle is the worst place to be as a political upstart where you have to come in either through the Republican Party or the Democrat Party. For a political entrepreneur today, you don't want to approach it from the middle. You can't approach it from the middle. You will never be the nominee of your party if you approach it from the middle. And if by some miracle you are the nominee of your party, you will lose the general election. This is an enormous change, structural change, in the American political dynamic. This is what polarization really means. It means that the political entrepreneur not only has to be different. They have to find a new issue area to communicate to the electorate. But on all the other issues that are already out there, they, I mean, if we're giving advice here, right, to win, you need to start from the far out positions, not from the middle positions. And that Man, that is exactly what we're seeing with successful political entrepreneurs today. Not only do they come up with a new issue to talk about, I'm very different from all of the incumbents, but also they approach it not from the middle, but from the ends, from the two poles. That Those are the two things that a political entrepreneur, a political entrepreneur always has to be different. Today, the political entrepreneur has to approach it from the polls, not the middle. Yeah, and Trump seems to have been the master of this. Um, you know, I remember when he won the Republican nomination the first time, I was thinking he's going to do what everybody else did. He's going to come to the middle in the general election. And then it didn't happen. 
So he, he obviously was realizing the stuff you're realizing back then. He was saying, you know, my best tactic here is not to come back to the middle. My best tactic is to stay out where I am. Um, and that's how I'm going to win the general election. Well, and, and here's the problem, Jack, which is that in a true bimodal distribution, right, the two humps of the camel, the real problem is there is no majority position, right? Trump did not win the popular vote, right, in any of these elections, right? He won the Electoral College in 2016. In 2020, he lost the Electoral College and the popular He lost the popular vote in both. So when we're just talking about the electorate, there is no, um, I'll call it stable outcome, political outcome here. What you experience, and this, I think this rings true for all of our experiences today, what we experience is moving from pillar to post, right? You swing from one entrepreneur, political entrepreneur on one party to another, you swing back, you swing forth. It's, it's not stable. It is not stable because there is no single issue on which voters, a, major, a strong majority of voters are in the middle. That's, that's, the, um, that's, that's the really troubling aspect of, uh, a structural aspect, I would say, of, 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 of our world today. Everyone who's different is approaching it from, from the radical positions, from either the far right or the far left, because that's what you have to be to be a successful political entrepreneur. But whatever success you have as that political entrepreneur, it's not stable. It's not stable. And that, in a nutshell, is what we call the widening gyre after the poem you know the, the the gyre just gets wider and wider it's a you know it's the centripetal force that just the, the the center does not hold and that's how we find ourselves in the situation we are today where everybody's unhappy with the system and the candidates do you think, I'm just curious, going back to the issue of like technology and social media, do these political entrepreneurs, do they have a better chance of succeeding now? Like I remember back in the day, you guys probably remember Ross Perot. You remember like the, the charts and the graphs and the 30 minute like commercials. And, you know, he, he, was kind of, he was kind of coming at it back in a day where there wasn't technology like this. Um, and, and I think he had some success until he dropped out and then, you know, he, he, could, he couldn't come back. But I'm just wondering, like the guys today, do they, do they have a better chance of succeeding because of the tools they have at their disposal? Well... I'll say this. I, I mean, what Ross Perot had was money. And Ross Perot was actually quite successful. Where Ross Perot doesn't last, though, is that it's just Ross Perot and his money. There is no institutional um, you know, apparatus around a Ross Perot. What's fascinating to me around about Donald Trump because Donald Trump wasn't about to spend the amount of money that, of his own personal money that Ross Perot was willing to spend. Uh, Donald Trump essentially took over the Republican Party, right? He was, he was as much of an insurgent and a political entrepreneur as anyone, but his, his role was not, or his, his approach was not to create a third party his approach was not to run as an independent. His approach was to capture the Republican Party because it's that apparatus that allows you to fundraise, that allows you to have the um, institutional levers of power to get your message out there that can only be overcome with massive amounts of personal money <laughs> if you don't have that sort of institutional backing. So, um, you know, that was, that was the interesting thing to me about Ross Perot was that he wasn't trying to take over a party. He was trying to do it himself. And that we, what that means is you can't, you, there was never a chance that you would have Perotism. You're saying the reform party? Right, right, the right. The reform party's not coming back? Right, right, right. Exactly, exactly. You can absolutely have Trumpism. 
because it, by taking over that political party apparatus, that's how you get an ism, right? Because it becomes embedded in that political party apparatus. Um, so anyway, I, if, if that if that helps, Jack, I mean, the short answer, of course, it's easier today, because the the in our current attention economy, celebrity is all that's required to get your, you know, celebrity, a high Q rating overcomes the problem of money. It overcomes the problem of, 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 of money. Uh, that, that was an enormous advantage for, again, that, that, that Donald Trump had. Yeah, and you're seeing in today's political entrepreneurs an acceptance of that fact. You're seeing an acceptance of, I can't do this outside the system, whether it's Vivek, Kennedy, Trump. I mean, they're all operating inside of the two-party system. They're, they're not trying to go well, outside. But, you know, but there, but there are efforts to go outside the, the system, right? So you had, you had Andrew Yang, right, you know, kind of famously quitting the Democrat Party to and talking about forming a new party. I, I remember I had, a, I had a long conversation with Andrew. Uh, about who's a you know extremely personable you know likable fellow um extremely so which i i think you'll find about all of these uh political entrepreneurs when you actually speak to them one-on-one -on -one, um they're all extremely charismatic do you know I, the, I, I, the I, family I, guy bit the bill clinton family guy bit from 20 years ago I'm not familiar with it, but 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 Bill Clinton is a perfect example of what I'm talking about. There's the, the crazy story about him at the the Salt Conference. Did you ever hear that story? That no, Scaramucci no, used to tell, tell it. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So Scaramucci shows up at the Salt Conference. Uh, I think, like think like, just peak presidency, like whatever. Like he didn't have a lot of people on his side, and he's showing up at a hedge fund conference in right. Vegas for a bunch of more right-leaning like donors and whatever and there's apparently like groans and whatever else as he takes the stage and uh scaramucci's retelling of this to the best i can remember is and he he literally explained this in, in front of a bunch of us once telling the story where he was like one of the most amazing public performances i've ever seen in my life he took every member of that room turned them around he could have he could have asked for checkbooks to be opened by the end of that thing because he knew exactly how to give that audience in that room what they wanted in a way that like complete room transformation from first word to last word. Yeah, it, it's one of those things where, you know, it's like a, if there are any Dungeons and Dragons players out there, right? It's like a, a, a charisma score of 21. I mean, it's godlike charisma because I've been in the room also with, 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 with Clinton and, and it's, it's crazy. It's crazy how, there is just this—I don't know what you call it—magnetism. I guess I guess the kids would call it Riz today, right? Charisma, <laughs> right? It's please don't ever use Clinton and Riz in a sense, uh, right? Yeah, you know, that, that, that's a very good point, man. I, I sure certainly would. Um, it's crazy, but but all of these guys have that ability. I, well, I don't know about DeSantis. I mean, so so I'm, I'll, I'll say I haven't you know had any personal interactions with all of them, but uh, but it's it. it, it this is what these guys, and let's be honest, they're mostly guys, right? This is their superpower. This is their superpower. But to become an ism, right? So that, that, they, that their policies or the like kind of lives on. By the way, I don't think Donald Trump could care less about Trumpism. I mean, I mean he's, again, he's also a very charismatic guy. In person, oh my God. He's extremely charismatic. Um, I know, you know, there'll be some people listening to say, oh, how do you say that? I mean, he is like Bill Clinton. I, I mean, again, it's crazy when you're in a room with, with, with these individuals, with the, the superpowers. But if you want the, if you want your policy or whatever your, your ism is to live on, it has to be part of one of our, to political party um, frameworks. And until that framework is changed, and by the way, there are ways to talk about changing that framework, uh, but until that framework is changed, 
you know, I think all of the efforts to create a third party are, uh, if not futile, I mean, they're all, they, they are all futile, I think. But I, I also think sometimes they are used intentionally kind of almost as sleeper agents by the other party to try to drain more support from the other major party. But anyway, that's a whole other conversation. If we're talking about political entrepreneurs. The way to go about it is within one of the existing parties, approach it from the edge, not the middle, and find an issue area on which you can be not better, to Matt's point, but different. I want to dig into more of that issue area thing and being different. I was just thinking about Vivek and I was thinking about Kennedy and I'm thinking about the issues they were focusing on. Like Vivek, we talked last time, he, he's focused on ESG. He's focused yeah. on Ukraine as well. Um, Kennedy's been focusing on vaccines. You know, I think he's also focused on Ukraine. I'm just wondering when they're doing their calculus as to which issues they're thinking about, like, can you just walk us through that process of how they're doing that? Sure. Well, first of all, to be successful, it has to be authentic. It just does. Um, I think it's, I think it, you can smell it a mile away when somebody attaches themselves to an issue that they don't, it's not part of who they are. So I, I, I think in Vivek's case, I, I mean, you know, the, 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 anti-ESG crusade was was what he was known for, right? That was his thing. That was his business thing. That's his, that was his thing, right? Uh, and, and similarly with, 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 with RFK Jr. Um, so the first thing I'd say is that these, uh, the new issue area that you want to try to explore as a political entrepreneur, it has to be authentic to you. I think that what you see, particularly in the RFK case, is it is authentic and it is going to be different. And also, and I'm speaking, you know, this is this is, you know, IMO as they as they say, I you I just run the risk, but I think in RFK Jr.'s case you go way into it. Um, you're just wrong. And um, anyway, maybe that's a whole other conversation. So, uh, uh, but but I, I I I think when you when you focus on being different for different sake, you run the risk of being batshit crazy. Now. There are ways to overcome that as well. And RFK Jr. overcomes it, uh, I'll say, in his appeal, not in the, the actual meat of what he says and has said and I think believes sincerely about uh, uh, biology and, uh, and, and medicine. The way you overcome it, and Vivek is very good about this as well, is that you are well-spoken. I can't tell you how many people I've heard say, you know what? I, I'm, I'm, I like what I hear with Vivek. I like what I hear with RFK Jr. And it's not... You know, if you, if you press them on, you know, yeah, they're really out there on this or that, or oh, I don't really know about this or that. But they'll say, wow, I mean, they can just speak and they talk facts and they're in command of the facts and they're so well-spoken and they can carry on a coherent conversation. And that in itself becomes a reason that people like them. And I get it, because it goes back to that authenticity question. I, I, I mean, the incumbent politician, is there a more inauthentic fake person in the world? If it is, I don't know who that person would be. I really don't. It, 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 it's, 
And, and personally, I think that's because to, to become an incumbent and to remain an incumbent, to remain a fixture on the political scene today, I, I mean, you, you sell your soul. There is no there there. Again, IMO, my opinion. And so when the political entrepreneur is someone who is saying something different and is saying it from a position of competence and is saying it from a position of authenticity and well-spokenness, we are hardwired as human beings to respond to that, to respond positively to that. And that is, I would say, the third secret. And I hate to kind of give advice to people whose policies I think are just really... We don't again, want to use your powers for evil here, Ben. Yeah, exactly. I feel, I feel, I feel that way. But, but those are the three things, right? Find a, different, a difference, a new perspective or issue area, approach it from the poles, not the middle. And third, discuss it, talk about it in a well-spoken, fact-laden manner. You just throw out the facts, man. Nobody's going to check you on any of this stuff. And if they do wait, check wait, you, hang, hang on, say it's, is not, it, it's not real good. Yeah. Is it, is it facts or is it common knowledge to the side of the gyre you, you're landing on? By facts, I mean, you, I'll call them factoids, right? So, 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 so any of, Good. any, so, you know, the uh, RFK Jr. on Joe Rogan, right? After which, you know, or I guess he had something with the, the all-in crowd too. And afterwards, I'm like, oh man, did you see how, how well-spoken RFK Jr. was? I mean, we, he talked about, you know, Thucydides and he talked about, you know, throwing out, throwing out all these facts about vaccines and, you, you know, big pharma and the like. It's, it's sophistry is what it is. And, and, uh, and, it, and it just eats me up inside. But yet, if, if you want to know how to succeed... That's the third pillar. <laughs> That's it. This That's it, right? It's find a new issue area, approach it from the poles, not from the center, and be a well-spoken, factoid-laden, you know, I've, I'm giving you all the footnotes here, and just, just and go with that. Those, those are the three pillars of success for a political entrepreneur today. To me, that's the most dangerous part of this, though, because when people say, I like what I hear, they're not really saying, I like what I hear. They're saying, I like how I hear it. And so it's being delivered in such a way, whether it's, you know, Kennedy on Joe Rogan or Vivek in that tweet we talked about last week, where he was about BlackRock and Vanguard smoking cigars in the back room and controlling the world. Like, it's delivered in such a way that people believe that it's true. And, and these guys are very good about skirting you know, right on that line of what's true and what's not true and using it to their advantage. And so as, as someone who consumes this stuff, it makes it really hard to try to figure all this stuff out. It's so powerful. These are the story arcs that we tell ourselves over and over again. And that we are, and I really mean this in the, in the, in the biological sense, hardwired to respond positively to. We are hardwired to respond to a story that there is a shadowy cabal behind the scenes that for profit or for power is making the bad things in the world happen to us, right? We are hardwired to believe that. And we've, as, as a human animal, a human social animal, that has always been the case. And I suspect it will always be the case. You see it in markets as well. There has to be an explanation. There has to be a why for why something went down, a price went down. You can't get on CNBC and say, well, it's just variance. <laughs> you will not be invited back. There must be a why. And one of the most powerful whys in a political sense is the shadowy, powerful other who is there behind the curtain 
the puppet master pulling our strings, but vote for me and I will be your champion to slay the puppet masters out there. I, I know we're going to tackle a couple of tweets in the zeitgeist here, and maybe this is a piece where we, we enter into that part of it. And that's this idea of naming the other is part of framing the different because you define in the population that you're in, whichever party you're part of in the, in the bimodal distribution here, you, you have to define different, not just what makes me different in my pack, but also what makes me most different from the other pack. And it's that I'm white, that's black, I'm black, that's white, whatever, that piece and how clearly you paint and communicate what you're not, what the enemy is. Like that is, that is Matt, this, huge this, here for clarity. Yeah, and this is the most important thing, right? Where Because what we're seeing develop is that the other party is not part of our large pack, the American pack. Right? You, you, you absolutely say that, 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 that for, for a political entrepreneur on the right, the best applause line you can give is that those leftist Democrats, those, they are the traitors, they are the enemies. They are the enemy of the people. And it's exactly the same thing on the, on the left, right? Where you had the president of the United States give his speech in Philadelphia about how, you know, not, oh, it wasn't all Republicans. It's just MAGA Republicans. They are enemies of the people, right? They are enemies of the country. They are traitors. And once you go down that path, I'll, I'll say there, there are two um, consequences of going down this path. The first is that it's highly effective. The, the, the first is that it, as a political entrepreneur, approaching it from the ends, not from the middle, saying that the other party is not a true American, is a wonderful way to build support within your own party. So, so it works. It works. It's not a stable outcome, right? But it, but it works to get to a position of power within, within your party. Then here's the other consequence. Once you define the other as evil, not just mistaken, but evil, un-American, a traitor. Once that is your framing, then any action you take to win an election and prevent the evil party, the traitors from coming to, part, to power, any action you take is justifiable because you're not doing it for your own benefit. You're doing it out of defending the country. You're doing it out of self-defense. As you act out of self-defense, anything is allowed. Anything. That's the consequence that I get really um, anguished about. To me, the thing, that's the thing we got to get over here. Like this evil thing, you know, you have an, an interesting similar experience to me, Ben, as you, I don't think you're originally from Alabama and you're in lower Connecticut now. I'm in lower Connecticut. I spent a bunch of years living in Georgia. And, and one thing I will say is, 90% of everything with all of us is the same. Like, sure, when I was in Georgia, I, had, I was around people who had completely different political opinions than the people I'm around when I'm in Connecticut. But that stuff is so small relative to what makes us the same. And, it, and it's like, it's just frustrating to see everybody get pulled apart when you realize, like, you put these people in the same room and you take politics out of the equation, every, everything's the same. I mean, they get along well. It's just, it's frustrating to see like everything being pulled apart when, when if we could just grasp the fact that 90% of this is the same, we, we'd all be so much better off. Well, we would, for sure. And there was a time when that was the case. Today, the intentional effort is made by political entrepreneurs for you to define your identity on one of these political dimensions because it works to their advantage. Not to your advantage, to their advantage. And it's, it, what can I, what can I tell you, Jack? It, it exists because it works. It exists because it works. And 
the tried and true, I'll say, result of this, the way out of this, the turning away from this, to use, you know, Neil Howe's fourth turning, you know, analogy here, is violent political conflict, either domestically, because the other side is truly the enemy, or internationally, where there is another that actually forces your domestic political differences to be subsumed in a successful effort to fight the external enemy. But, you know, I, I think of myself as a bit of a student of history, and once we get to this point, Jack, I, I'm hard-pressed to find an example of how one gets out of this without either organized political violence domestically or internationally. Yeah, it's, it's obviously a sad state. You know, hopefully, you know, hopefully more people will do like what we're doing here, though. Hopefully more people will try to talk about this honestly and, you know, look at both sides of things. And, you know, obviously, like you said, that, that coming from the bottom up is probably all you can do here, but that's obviously difficult to do, you know, in light of all the forces that are, that are working up above us. It is. And I'm glad you mentioned this about the uh, bottom-up approach because we don't have the ability structurally in the United States as it's, you know, with, the, with, our, with our current system of non-proportional representation uh, to affect change from the top down, right? You can't, they're, they're changing the party system. And within each of the parties, as I was describing, you have a self-reinforcing dynamic that any successful political entrepreneurship has to come from the uh, the extremes, not 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 from the middle. So I I think that all one can do is recognize, step back from the fray, refuse to allow your identity to be taken up by one of these political entrepreneurs on the left or the right but to find other like-minded people who step back and essentially refuse to play the game. I could, I, I could ask so many more questions, but I know we have to move forward here and, uh, and Matt, Matt's going to push me. I got to get into the zeitgeist here. Um, but we've, we've picked two tweets and I wanted you just to comment on them because I think maybe inside of these tweets are some of these techniques we've been talking about. So that they might be decent mm -hmm. examples. So I just want to read, we picked one from each side. We picked one from Robert Kennedy and we picked one from Vivek. And I just want to read them to you and see, see what you think. So, the first one is from Robert Kennedy, and we'll put it up on the screen. It's BlackRock plus State Street plus Vanguard are robbing Americans of the ability to own homes. I have a plan to stop them and start a housing boom for everyone. So my first reaction, then I'll get yours. My first reaction is, first of all, BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard seems like a great place for all these guys to go. We, we talked last week, Vivek's going after him. Now on the other side, Kennedy's going after him. It seems like sure. someone no one supports, so that's probably a good place to go after. But what are your thoughts on this? Well, there there comes some, the the word robbing, right? The 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 and what we're, we're what we're tapping into is uh, you know another old story, which is the secret plan. The secret plan, which is that that that, that shadowy cabal, right? They're not they're not acting randomly. They're not even just acting just as criminals. They have a secret plan. There's, you know, this is, this is elders of Zion stuff, right? There's always a secret plan. There's always a, a book. There's always something where the evildoers have, you know, written this down. It's the, the agenda of Weth and the like, right? We should talk about Klaus Schwab sometimes, who's, you know, who's a, a cartoon. He's just, anyway, I knew him back in the day when we were both doing executive education programs out of, you know, up in Boston, you know, the guy's awful and it's ridiculous, but, but there's no like secret files and agenda for this stuff. I, but, but, but we're, anyway, we're tapping, he's tapping into that, that idea, right? That there is a plan and better yet, I've got the plan, right? To, I'm the man with a plan, which is, you know, Famously, you know, one of uh, you know one of the steps on the 
on the, the road to serfdom is that, I know, let's elect a man with a plan. It taps into all of that, Jack. I mean, it's, it's, it's exactly what we're talking about. It's the, the shadowy, gargantuan other. It's not just shadowy and gargantuan. They've got a secret plan to destroy you. Thankfully, I have my own plan to save the day. Extra, extra copycat, mimesis, whatever you want to call it, is RFK in part doing this because he's seen it track well with Vivek? You know, I, I, I think probably. I mean, there's, there's again, it's, it's got to come from a place of authenticity for mm. it to be effective. So I actually don't know if RFK Jr. is going to be able to uh, glom onto the you know, kind of that Vivek route of, oh, here are the people, you know, just look at the holders of all these companies. They own everything, right? which is, you know, the, 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 the way this is often kind of described to people. I don't know. I mean, he's, he's, he's talked authentically about housing before, so we might be able to take this as, a, as an offshoot of stuff that he's talked about before. But honestly, it's worth a try. I find, you know, as a, as a political entrepreneur, when you see, it's, it's like any other aspect of entrepreneurship. If you see that something's working and it kind of fits with where you are, you're going to take it on too. I, all of this stuff are trial balloons, snowballs. You just try to roll down the hill and see what, what, what picks up speed. Whatever analogy you want to use, that's what politics is. You're trying out a million of these different things and trying to express it in a way that taps into one of these hard wirings in your audience's head and get them to transfer their vote from where it's been to you. And it's interesting to me, too, on that secret plan thing. You know, what's the most American thing to do? You know, in a lot of cases, it's own a home. Like, everybody wants to own a home. So if there's going to be a secret plan against me, like, that's something he's really picking up on there is, like, if they have a secret plan to stop me from owning a home, like, that's going to make me really angry. So it seems like he's playing into both of those at the same time. Oh, that's, that's what you're always trying to do with these things, Jack. I mean, I mean you don't, you don't want to just... Because you have a limited amount of bandwidth, time, that you can get in front of a potential voter. And to the degree that your issue, your statement, your tweet can, you know, attach to several different narrative receptors in the audience's, you know, the audience member's brain, absolutely you want to do that. Absolutely you want to do that. And the only thing I'm surprised if he, you know, didn't work in some, you know, you know, reference to, you know, nuclear families in there. That, 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 anyway. Anyway, Vivek does a lot of that, right? So you, you, there are all these kind of trigger points or receptors. You got, I, I really do think of this, the, the world of narratives, like I think of the world of, of microbes and viruses and germs. I mean, in the same way that we talk about the receptors that a virus will hook onto, I, I honestly think of, that's how I think about statements like this, how many spike proteins exist in a tweet like this to find a receptor in a, you know, a neural cluster to try to latch onto. And the, uh, the last thing we're going to talk about is one from Vivek. And I, I wanted to ask you about this because I didn't really understand like what his strategy was with this. And you, you can probably understand it better behind the scenes, but the, the tweet was, we're not a direct democracy. We're a constitutional Republic. We need to revive civic duty among young Americans. That's why I support a constitutional amendment to raise the voting age from 18 to 25 but to still allow 18-year-olds to vote if they either pass the same civics test required of immigrants to become naturalized citizens or else to perform six months of military or first responder service, we must be ambitious. So what do you make of that? Uh, most plans that are proposed, most policy proposals are proposed knowing that they cannot happen, knowing that it is impossible for this to actually occur. Uh, and it's a, it's a wonderful exercise in sophistry again, where you can sound very well-spoken and you can kind of construct this fantasy world of whatever you like, knowing full well that it cannot happen. 
It cannot happen. It, of course, it, and it shouldn't happen either. It shouldn't happen either. Right, we're going to raise the, 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 the voting, you know, so, so yes, you can be drafted, you can do all this, but you can't freaking vote? Are you, are you kidding me? So, it'll, it, it, Vivek knows this can never happen, it will never happen, but it creates, again, clicking into a story and a narrative structure that Vivek's voters, he wants to encourage. Right? One of, you know, misguided youth, um, need for more, you know, public service. All things that are true, <laughs> right? All things that are, you know, laudable. It, we've, we've reached aware where no one wants to be taken, everyone wants to be taken seriously, but no one wants to be taken literally. And, and so, what many political entrepreneurs, and this was a classic phrase associated with, with Donald Trump, don't take him literally, take him seriously, that the actual policy proposal, which everyone knows cannot happen, is something that everyone says, oh, okay, yeah, that it, it sounds good. It clicks into imagery and ideas that I'd like to have without the burden of, oh, do we actually want to do this? No, no one wants to actually do it. And so what Vivek, you know, again, taking cues from a very successful political entrepreneur, you talk about things that you can sound serious without being taken literally. I, you know, you saw him do this when he was talking about his, what he would have done on January 6th uh, if he were in Mike Pence's position where his response is, well, I would have required us to, you know, before we certified the vote, we would have passed a law that day that would have required in-person voting and et cetera, et cetera. You know, just creating this kind of fantasy world as, oh, that's what I would have done, when everyone knows that's not true. What he wanted to say was, I, <laughs> I don't think Mike Pence did the right thing, and... I, but you can't say that. So he creates some sort of fantasy world where he can be taken seriously, but not literally. So if we take this, if we take this in the markets direction and sort of what's going on, the, the push into the wings and knowing that what you just said about like policy, policy doesn't actually get implemented or proposed policies don't actually turn into real no. policy. How do we think as investors, as allocators of people with with money on the line, how do we think about which parts of these are story, just the snowballs at the top of the mountain that are going to flitter out into nothing versus what's actually, what is potential to translate back into the middle? I guess that's what I'm saying. If you're going to win in the wings, but like the, the center is what you, you control and you take over. Are, are, do any of these translate back, or is it all just noise and we go back to locked Congress and status quo and nothing? So I think that the, the um, let's call it the, the, the deadlock, the gridlock in American politics, my view that's a feature, not a bug. Agreed. And, and, I, and I think from a market's perspective, you can discount 98% of what's spoken in kind of policy language, like, oh yeah, we're gonna do a constitutional amendment to raise the voting age to 25 and all. You know, if, you know, if, if a fraction of that occurred, obviously it would have enormous market impacts and you know, investable this and investable that. Like, none of that can ever happen. Right? 99% of policies that you hear any political candidate talk about, I think can be safely ignored from uh, from an investment point of view, and I fact, I think it's it's dangerous to you and your pocketbook if you take it seriously at all. Here's what I do think you have to take very seriously, though. In the same way that we have political entrepreneurs in this realm of politics, we absolutely have investing and market entrepreneurs who tell you what to do, not with your vote, but tell you what to do with your money. 
So I, I think it's having that sort of critical distance that maybe we can kind of agree that we need to have in the political sphere, but then for all of us to recognize, well, we need that sort of critical distance in the investing sphere as all as well. I think that's the main takeaway. You know, not that, you know, there are these, oh, here's how to recognize this policy that actually has a chance. I think that, you know, 99 point X percent of them have no chance. So it doesn't make any sense to spend your energy trying to evaluate them on their potential market impact. What I think has a lot of, of usefulness for an investor is to say, okay, this same sort of critical thinking that I'm applying to the political world, let me apply it to the investing in markets world as well. That investing entrepreneurs idea, that would be a great episode for us to do at some point. There's probably a lot we could dig into there as well. SPACs, baby, SPACs. I mean, I mean, look, so there are a lot of examples we can, that, we, that we could do a, a very good episode on, right? But let me just say, while we're here, give me an example, Ben, of something I'm talking about. The whole SPACs craze, craze right? SPACs have been around forever. I did SPACs in my, in my hedge fund, and I, I kind of like SPACs because you get your money. Anyway, we should do an episode on SPACs because that's a great example of how a market entrepreneur, there are a couple of them, created a enormous amount of, well, I, I was going to say retail investing, but there are a lot of, you know, family offices and institutions that, you know, decided, oh, SPACs, that's what I want to do too. The word's so fun to say. Who doesn't want to do the it? The word is fun to say. So yes, we should absolutely do an episode about that because, you know, what happens in the political sphere with political entrepreneurs absolutely happening investing every day and recognizing that can really be a help to your pocketbook. All right. So I got notes. I'm going to take us out on this summary, how to be a political entrepreneur, Ben Hunt's 101. You got to find your authentic different, not your authentic better, your authentic different. You got to win in the wings and move to the center when you're king, branding that one. And you have to do it with charisma and you have to be so good with your factoids that you like machine-like charisma in everything you do to be a political entrepreneur. The widening gyre, it just keeps getting wider. And if we look at how's fourth turning metaphor of it takes political violence to turn us over, the, the reality is we're trying to refine that middle. And I made a note of this, this Pema Chodron quote that I just kept thinking of when we were talking about it, which was doubt with curiosity, not with cynicism. And that kind of feels the key, how to doubt with curiosity again. Ben, you commented again on seeing the snowballs. I love this visualization. It's the snowballs being rolled down from the top of the mountain because roll mass is what gets noticed. And that means most policies proposed cannot happen. You have to remember that, but they're still gonna play on them when they look at those snowballs, which is why we wanna also notice the ones that are being taken seriously, but not literally. That's a clear indication of that's being strategically put to use. You brought up, you brought up in markets that gridlock is a feature, not a bug. Couldn't agree with that more. And that it's always dangerous to invest on policy, especially policy beliefs. Always believe, uh, invest on ideas, never invest on beliefs. And finally, critical distance. I feel like we're going to come back to this a million times with breaking news. But whether you get critical distance with your friend group, with your professional group, with your team of advisors, or just trusted professionals around you, there's market entrepreneurs, there's investment entrepreneurs, there's political entrepreneurs. You need your people. And I'll say that Pema quote again, it's that we have to learn to doubt with curiosity, not with cynicism. That's where our pack is, the people we can doubt with curiosity around. That I do. You did great, man. I, I mean, I'm, I'm taking you everywhere I go give the talk because uh, these summaries, they're the, they're the best part of what we do. This was, that was well said. It's a pleasure joining you both for this conversation. This is Political Entrepreneurs. Like, subscribe, follow. Please tell a friend. We're having so much fun doing these. And we think these conversations are so important. So we'll be back soon. Thanks, guys. Bye, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Be sure to like and subscribe wherever you're watching breaking news so more people can find our show. If you know another clear-eyed and full-hearted individual, why not share this episode with them too? Like we said at the top, the media is making us tick, and it's our job to talk. 
follow the headlines at fiatnews.com. Follow Ben at epsilontheory.com and at epsilontheory on Twitter. Follow Jack at validiacapital.com and at Practical Font on Twitter. Follow Matt at sunpointinvestments.com, cultishcreative.com, and at cultishcreative on Twitter. Ben Hunt is the co-founder and CIO of Second Foundation Partners. Jack Forehand is a principal at Validia Capital Management. Matt Ziegler is managing director at Sunpoint Investments. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Second Foundation Partners, Validia Capital, or Sunpoint Investments. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of Second Foundation Partners, Validia Capital, or Sunpoint Investments. Nothing in this podcast is investment advice.